A warning before we start. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse. Act four. Oh, threats of hell and hopes of paradise. Fellowship of Friends, Angel Omar Khayyam. I'm at Apollo, the Fellowship of Friends headquarters in Northern California. I'm sitting in an enormous replica of an ancient Greek amphitheater, under a star-filled sky, watching a play performed by members. Behind the stage are the terraced vineyards that members dug out of the mountain. It's July 2019. I've spent the last several months learning about how Apollo was built, how they recruited members, and how people were hurt in the early years. I've spoken to several men who told me Robert sexually exploited them decades ago. But then a member sued Robert and the Fellowship for alleged abuse in 1996. That case was settled. And since then, things have gone quiet. I've come back to Apollo because I want to understand what things are like now. Did the Fellowship do anything to protect members from Robert's coercive behavior or just get better at hiding it? I also want to understand why people remain committed to the Fellowship despite the allegations. Robert teaches that the Fellowship of Friends is itself a play. Everyone has their roles. Anything painful or strange, it's all a part of the script. It's written, inevitable. This dogma can be comforting, but it can also devour free will. Fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once, the juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make or man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. The play we're watching now is Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, which takes place in a magical forest where fairies and humans coexist. Fetch me this herb. Oberon, king of the fairies, uses a potion to make Titania fall in love with a mortal that another fairy has turned into a donkey. Watching it performed at Apollo, I realized the play is about consent and identity, and how both of those can be taken away through mind control. I'll watch Titania when she is asleep and drop the liquor of it in her eye. The next thing that she waking looks upon, she shall pursue it with the soul of love. You were told to have an abortion if you got pregnant. And a lot of women had abortions. He only preyed on heterosexuals. He only preyed on young men that they had no idea. He's a sexual predator, first-class sexual predator. How do you give consent in a group where there's no free will? This is Revelations. I'm Jennings Brown.
Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At the play, I sat with a high-ranking member, Judith. Judith Grace. I have been in the fellowship for 43 years. I have opened several centers, like Paris, Rome, Milan, San Francisco, New York. Nice, St. Petersburg, Moscow. Judith is a playwright and a poet. She also edited Robert's autobiography, 50 Years with Angels. She invited me over to her home and we discussed the performance. Speaking to her, I start to see why people remain entranced by the grandeur and romance of Apollo. There's just nothing like going to a production under the evening sky as twilight comes and the birds are flying around and... Uh, it just makes you feel like the way life is supposed to be. It's also extremely poetic. At Apollo, you get to experience this poetry all the time. No one lives with this kind of poetry in their life, in a mindset that's undistracted, because it is, in a way, a monastery. Exclusive. The pinnacle of all this living poetry is the Galleria, Robert's home. It's filled with beauty in every corner. 18th century furniture, paintings, beautiful tapestries, and marble statues. It's a reflection of our teacher. But Judith admits that not everyone sees the magic. In the fellowship, it's a hologram. You look at it this way, and it looks miraculous. You look at it this way, and it looks like a horror, you know, oh, let's say a Fellini movie. And you have to choose in your mind the way you want to see life. It's really not taking much intelligence to see the negative of life. She acknowledges that some people see the fellowship as something surreal and frightening, but they're just not as intelligent or enlightened. They can't see the beauty. Judith invites me to a sunset cocktail party so I can experience Apollo's magic for myself. In the garden around the Galleria, a few dozen members gather at tables in a courtyard next to a fountain. A pianist plays jazz standards. Everyone sips champagne and eats hors d'oeuvres. I sit at a table with a few students, including Judith and Jack. Remember him? He was my escort the week of the apocalypse prediction. We're all dressed elegantly. I'm struck by how focused everyone is. I think they're all trying to be what they call present, but everyone at my table seems to be directing most of their attention to me. They maintain deep eye contact and react with delight to everything I say. I think this may be a form of love bombing, a tactic some groups use to make new members feel accepted. All of a sudden, everyone's attention turns to a pathway in the garden. Robert is approaching. He's dressed in a pale blue suit covered in accessories, surrounded by a small entourage of men. Robert glides into this arrangement and sits at the center table, just a few feet away from me. He says very little and speaks too softly for me to hear. A few moments later, Jack tells me I'm gesticulating too much. 
moving my hands as I talk to the people at my table. Robert teaches that limiting gesticulation is a way to control presence. Jack tells me there's an exercise where they interlock their fingers in order to minimize hand movement. What Jack doesn't tell me then, but tells me later, is that he doesn't want me to catch Robert's attention. But I think I get it anyway. A few minutes later, an old man gets up from Robert's table and approaches. I unlock my fingers and introduce myself. He holds up a photo of a young man on his phone. It's him when he was 28. He says I look just like he did. I don't really see the resemblance. He asks to take a photo of me. I smile and he takes the shot with his phone. Then he walks back over to Robert. Later, Jack tells me that this man is Robert's admiral and he was probably doing recon for Robert. This whole experience, it had me on edge. I can't help but think about the warning an ex-member gave me a few months earlier. You're the kind of person Burton would come onto. You, know? you have a refreshing, open face. You're cute. Just the kind of person that he likes. <laughs> By now, I understand what he meant. He kissed me in the mouth, and I felt I was falling back to another dimension. But I was saved. Saved from what? From the sexual abuse. That's after the break. So you've got the uh, Bitcoin going over there. I operate Bitcoin ATMs. Huh? That's what I found after the fellowship to survive. I'm at a kitchen table, sitting across from a short man with a fake tribal tattoo around his arm. We're at his home in Sacramento. I've spent the last week at Apollo, talking to members, seeing the play, the cocktail party. After all those strange experiences, I need a break. I want to share what I've seen with an ex-member and get his perspective. This man left the fellowship in 2016. His name is Mario. Mario Fantoni, I joined the fellowship in 1988 in Brazil, Sao Paulo. Mario was in the fellowship in Brazil for 10 months before he got a chance to go to California. Then I had the opportunity to visit Apollo and meet Robert. A student, she warned me he has sex with his students. And I said, that's not right. So she prepared me. I arrived, somebody said, tonight there is a symposium with young men and Robert. Of course, when you arrive, they give you a gin and tonic, and then starts the dinner, and you get white wine, and then you get red wine, and then you get dessert wine, and then there was cognac. I was so drunk by the end of the dinner that I was swirling my cognac like a whirling dervish. Cognac all over the table. And also you're in that state and meeting an angel. You don't feel he's a man. I'm a short guy, and Robert said, I got a fortune cookie recently that said that short man will enter your life. How do you feel when an angel tells you that? But he kissed me in the mouth, and I felt I was falling back to another dimension. Why? Well, an angel kissed me in the mouth. If we see cults of an addiction, that was my first shot of heroin. But 
I was saved. Saved from what? From the sexual abuse. Because a friend of mine that was so similar to me arrived a few days later, and when Robert saw him for the first time, he came to me and said, sorry, it was a mistake. He was the short guy. But at that moment, you feel, no, this is a mistake. You feel bad not to be one of his lovers. This just shows how deep the control can be. Mario believed that Robert's behavior was abusive, that it was wrong for a teacher to exploit their position of power for sex. And yet, Robert manipulated him to feel inadequate in some way for not being the target of abuse. He'd stay in the fellowship for about 28 years. Can you think of one particular moment or story when you felt this, the highest elevated state and you were like, this is it? One story? I have 30,000 stories. It's a drug. So imagine that you are interviewing a 28-year meth addict. Tell me one time that you took meth and you felt, I see God. I said, all the time. You are in a permanent high. Permanent. I was always in the compound and I was always seeing Robert passing. That gives you a high. In the middle of lunch, we're talking about Armageddon and God visiting Robert. It's a high. very real for me. Yesterday, I went to a little setting over near the Galleria. Somebody was playing jazz. There was champagne and hors d'oeuvres. Robert came and sat in the middle, and everybody was sitting around. Um, so I was just a few feet from him. And everybody was dressed very nice, just sipping champagne. I mean, the, the sun was setting, the fountains were going. I'm not even a student, but you're making me realize like what that would be like over and over. Yeah, you just had it. A taste of heroin. <laughs> Imagine if you are taking it for years and years every day, you're on a permanent high. A permanent high. I see what he means. Shakespeare under the stars, champagne with Robert. There is an enchantment to it all. I get how people could become addicted to these experiences. And when you're chasing a high, you can become blind to the tragedies around you. I thought, well, maybe he has three or four people. I didn't know the large amount of people that had sex with Robert. And I only knew when I started living at Apollo and I was attending events at the Galleria where Robert lives. And I was seeing after the events, the amount of young male that were staying there when everybody was leaving. And I started to connect the dots. He inferred that they were there for Robert, who may have been sexually exploiting them. It was his home, after all. This reminds me of something. A few hours after last night's cocktail party, Jack suggested we go to the side entrance of the Galleria kitchen to see if we could get some scraps from the formal dinner that night. I tell Mario about what I saw. Last night I was actually next to the Galleria. Yes. And a car came up and a couple Russian young men got out and they greeted Sasha and then went inside. Sasha is one of Robert's right-hand men. He's Russian in his 40s. I saw him walk out of the kitchen wearing a salmon-colored suit. He said something in Russian and embraced the two young men, like some kind of mob underboss. And it was after the dinner. I mean, it was like 10.30. I, I didn't... What Does that sound like what you're talking about? That's exactly what I mean. When I started saying things like this, almost every event 
Why do people arrive at the end at 10, 30, 11? What are they doing? They're not washing dishes. He's suggesting that these men who arrived late at night were there for sex. According to Mario, when he left in 2016, Robert was still sexually abusing some of his students. He believes many of these men were immigrants who came to America with the help of the fellowship. Robert has sex these days with young men from Romania, Russia, third world countries that come and they see that opportunity as a way to get a green card. So it's not only an honor, it's a passport to America. This is major. If what Mario is alleging is true, then the fellowship is helping young men immigrate to America where they are pressured to enter into sexual servitude. The day after speaking to Mario, I attend an ancient craft festival at Apollo. Members are showing off their skills. There are booths for pottery, bookbinding, bread making, and a lot more. There's antiques and art for sale and wandering musicians. A lot of the younger people here are Eastern European. I've noticed it before, but now I'm paying closer attention. Here I meet a Russian member who lived and traveled with Robert for years. He was a part of Robert's so-called entourage, a group also known in the fellowship as Robert's Boys. We'd spoken on the phone briefly after an ex-member suggested I reach out to him, but I'm surprised when he just introduces himself to me at this public event. I try to be discreet and ask if he can do an interview. He agrees to, but to make sure we have some privacy, we drive out into the forest and sit by a lake, several miles from Apollo. He asked me to alter his voice and change his name, since he's still a member of the Fellowship. Then I can be 100% open. <laughs> I'll refer to him as Dimitri. Dimitri told me he no longer respects Robert like he used to, so he doesn't mind telling me the truth about his experiences. But he's still a member of the Fellowship because it's all he really knows here in America. He doesn't want to lose his community and his livelihood. Dimitri joined at a Russian center. Then in the early 2000s, he was selected to move to California, to Apollo, to be near Robert. Was there a point when you first got selected? There was uh, several students appointed in Russia to select the guys for him. So they would select the guys uh, and uh, Robert would invite them to travel with him. They know what Robert wants? They kind of know his tastes and everything, yeah, yeah. Of course, to move here, they need a visa. Did someone like help you come in? Yeah, certainly there were people actually on salary who were helping to prepare documents and prepare students for interview for embassies, yeah. He told me fellowship members help non-citizens prepare for their interviews with the embassies so they can obtain visas. And so then you got a religious visa? Yeah. Fellowship is registered as a church. So if you have a status as a church in California, then you can bring people as a religious workers. Did you have a specific position? You kind of have a role. You're either a minister or you're a religious worker. But then when you come to Apollo, you just, you know, you're doing whatever is need, need to be done. He was listed as a minister, but he was just doing whatever work the fellowship needed done. And this came after someone picked you as somebody who might be good for Robert? Yeah. You know, it was one of the things which Robert said after the first night, oh, now you can come and live in the Galleria with me. Yeah, it was kind of a reward. 
After Dimitri obtained a religious visa through the fellowship, he immigrated to the U.S. He was then selected to live in the Galleria with Robert. He started traveling with Robert and his entourage of young men. It was presented as something very innocent that's good for your spiritual development. You go to museums, you go to very nice places, nice restaurants, and he pays for everything. Robert paid for everything, or the fellowship did. Their hotels, their fine dining, museums, galleries, it all came from money given by the rest of the members. For a simple person in Russia in that time to go abroad, it wasn't so easy unless you're making good money. Obviously, he takes younger boys with him because he interested sexually in them. It was during one of these trips when Robert asked Dmitri to stay in his hotel room. One of the nights, he invites you into his room in the hotel and it all happens there. And it's, of course, psychologically, it wasn't easy. Oral sex, you know. And in the morning after, I felt like shit. Honestly, I didn't feel good at all. So it was a big shock to be intimate with him because naturally I'm not attracted to men at all. The other survivors I've spoken to, they're much older than me, recalling things that happened before I was born. It feels like history, trauma from another era. But Dimitri is just a few years older. His first experiences with Robert happened when I was in college. Why do you swallow it? You're taught to look at it that, you know, Robert gives so much energy to the students and you just help to replenish this energy. And this gave him access to unlimited power. Unlimited power. Robert was able to get whatever he wanted, and he kept pushing for more. Robert had this initiative to celebrate with like a special love fest where he wanted to have sex with a hundred men. That's next. On this trip out to California, I also meet another ex-member who lived and traveled with Robert around the same time that Dimitri did. So you wanted tea, huh? Should I pull this chair over, or? Yeah, you can sit there if you want. He became a high-ranking member, but then he left the fellowship in 2008. I meet him in his home about an hour's drive from Apollo. He's got a shaved head and a beard. His arms are covered in tattoos. What are these uh, tattoos all over? So when I left, it was part of the process of... Getting your skin back. Yeah. Reclaiming yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's right, man. He works as a therapist now, and he asked me not to use his name for professional reasons, so I'll call him Luca. <laughs> he came to Apollo from the Fellowship's Romania Center around the year 2000, and he moved in with Robert in the Galleria. The place was very beautiful, you know, like a museum, though. It wasn't, like, livable. However, people lived in the night like rats. <laughs> Robert has his own bedroom, but about 10 younger male students slept in other rooms throughout the Galleria. During the day, the Galleria is pristine because everyone's bedding is hidden throughout the mansion. I had a sleeping bag underneath and I pull it out and sleep in a sleeping bag. But I needed to wake up in the morning and clear it and make it just his study before he wakes up. By this point, Robert's sex with his students was practically woven into the fellowship's dogma. It was a part of the play. The program was that it's a holy sex, basically, that that's part of the play, that higher influence is the angels. They arrange it that he is supposed to have sex with his students, you know? I heard this program from some other people who were having sex with him. I wasn't at that time. Over time, Robert became more of a father figure to Luca. 
taking him on trips with the rest of his entourage of young men. I started traveling with him in Europe, going to beautiful places in Italy, in Spain, in France, going to art and culture. And, and then he would be teaching. So he was like a real, like, ah, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I considered him more important than my father, you know? <laughs> His eyes well up. He looks away from me, out the window. You know, we all had some kind of father wound, absence of father or something. So in this context, I was traveling with him and I knew that there were other people there, like about 10 guys or so. I knew he was spending a night with some of these guys, but he never asked me anything. He was taking his time. Initially, when I would hear these stories, I was like, fucking no way, man. I'm not going to have sex with him. But he never asked me for about two years or so, to the point that I was so open to him and so um, trusting of him as my teacher. And I had this thought, I think if he were to ask me, I would just see what happens. What the fuck? He was smooth, man. He was slow, smooth. Now, looking back on these experiences, Luca believes it's as if Robert knew exactly how much grooming he needed before he would be at his most vulnerable. He was very good at manipulating people. Anyway, one day as we're coming out of a museum or something in London, he has this habit of to take you sometime by the arm, walking side by side. And of course, when he would take you like that, it was like nice, you know, the teacher. Like the ideal grandpa, father and God mixed all together. He says, uh, hey, dear, I was wondering how do you feel about sharing the room tonight in the hotel? I was like, it's like burning. I could feel all this like, shit, wow, here it is. And very nonchalant, relaxed. I was like, yeah, sure. And then I was like, wow, fuck, what's going to happen? And then we go in the room there and then he said to go to bed. We were hugging on the side like this, you know. And so that was already pretty edgy for me, you know. i never been with a man. But he was just there, kind of holding gently, so to say, on the side. And then nothing happened. I fell asleep. Then at some point in the night, I wake up and he was like sucking my dick or something. And so that was, uh, it was shocking. But I went along with it. Somehow I said yes to this unknown thing. I had my own understanding why I was doing it influenced by all that programming, but I didn't like it. I didn't want to. <laughs> but I would go against myself. And then I was trying to get it over with as soon as possible, like a very unpleasant chore. At the time, in the early 2000s, Luca was about 22. Robert was around 60. Robert is his spiritual father, his boss, and his landlord, possibly the reason he could get a visa and come to the U.S. He influences nearly every aspect of Luca's life. Did it escalate from there? Yeah, man, he had his own system. So if we were in a galleria, like different people there, they would have sex with him. And then there was a much larger number who were just regular students, 20, 30 regulars. But then I think from 2000 onward, and with a strong influx of East European students, young, beautiful men, dedicated, idealists, but with the, this influx, I think that his sexual appetite and operation increased tremendously. 
So it will be like he will uh, have sex with like maybe eight or so, ten. And then I noticed a trend during my time there that he started to have two people, like a threesome, all non-homosexual. I repeat that. <laughs> Handsome men of different types, like a Russian one, a French one, an Italian one, a Romanian one, but all heterosexual. As the fellowship expanded, opening centers in other countries, Robert had access to more men. Which I guess it's a principle in like addiction, you know, you need to increase the dose to uh, get satisfaction. He had this system like that, he will give oral sex to some guy, then some other guy will give him massage, or will... Uh... Man, this is pretty intense, man. I don't know if your podcast can handle, I mean, I don't know. Okay. But at least you know, you want to know, I can tell you. So with these teams of people, the number will grow quite a bit. So it will be more like 13, 14, 15 people a day. He was very good at reading people. And so he would pair people uh, that were friends with each other. So that made it easier for them or they were comfortable. And then what will happen will be there in the moment. Robert will direct things. Robert, always the director. In the usual self, he was more like composed and uh, noble, let's say sophisticated. But then backstage, he was like a wild dog that hasn't eaten for a long time. And he's like... <sighs> it seemed totally hijacked by his um, desire. But it didn't stop there. According to Luca, Robert had a special event where he tried to have sex with dozens of his students in one day. Robert had this initiative to celebrate with like a special love fest where he wanted to have sex with a hundred men, which required a lot of effort to make it happen. It needed special organization so that he will have people back to back in order to fit a hundred men. But I think he couldn't quite do it a hundred and he got run down. But he did about like maybe like 70 or something, uh, roughly. 70 men that day? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But it was getting started early on, early morning. And then it, um, I think maybe by nine, he couldn't do it anymore. 9 p.m.? Yeah. It's difficult to fathom, but Dimitri also told me about participating in this love fest. Oh, it was a signed Valentine usually. Almost all male students who were ever close to Robert, which is many. They would go one after another to Robert's bedroom. Yes, I don't know, maybe it was 80 or 100 people. 80 or 100 people? I guess so. So one day it was non-stop marathon. This is how he would celebrate St. Valentine. Did you participate in that? Yeah, yeah. If you were close to him in those days, he would call for everybody. It was quite a marathon for him. I'm imagining the scene in the Galleria as a Renaissance painting depicting a dark Dionysian orgy with Robert at the center. Except it was real. It required planning and logistics, a schedule, a waiting room. People need to be in like a waiting room because it didn't go quite on schedule. So there are people kind of waiting and it was kind of a little weird. They didn't know, hey, you know, you are number 57 number 54. No, they thought it's just business as usual. They didn't know they were just like processed to just digit next, digit like a DMV. Just like the DMV. This tragedy has been going on for so long that it's become mechanical. 
it shows just how ingrained the manipulation is. But after a few years in Robert's entourage, he just slipped out of the trance. I realized that he's not enlightened. I, I just, at some point, I saw that he's not. Then I was like, fuck, man, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's almost like all we're under some spell. I would sometimes be at a table of like 10 people, you know, with Robert. And I would look around and everybody was like a shadow of themselves, man. They were like sucked, man. They were like, like, like vampirically somehow disempowered and disabled. So he was kind of like a vampire? Yeah, yeah. Like a constant supply of blood, right? It seems like Luca has made a kind of peace with the trauma he went through in the fellowship. You know, uh, this system with bringing people from Eastern Europe or other parts of the world for religious visas, I was like, hey, that's fine with me. That's cool. That, that seemed fine with me. I benefited from it, basically. Mm -hmm. And I indeed was playing some unusual <laughs> role. I am guessing that you don't look back on your time and think that you were like a victim of sex trafficking. When I was in it, I didn't think that I'm sexually... Uh, taken advantage of or abused or trafficked. I just felt that I was deeply committed to this uh, teaching that brought me to this organization. And then this guy seemed to be the wise leader whom I trusted a lot. And then gradually started to have this aspect that he wanted to have sex with me. I guess I integrated in the whole brainwashing, you know? But I didn't think of myself like that. Yeah. Although I was, I guess. <laughs> And um, trafficking, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> trafficking. I don't know, I don't know. Maybe, you know. I asked Dimitri about this too. I mean, if they specifically got you a religious visa, they helped you, they brought you in, mm -hmm. and it was, uh, at least on some level, for sex with Robert, I mean, doesn't that kind of fit the definition of sex trafficking? <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it sex trafficking, no. It's a spiritual sex trafficking. <laughs> it's different. Spiritual sex trafficking. In the fellowship, students are alienated from their old friends and family. In their new family, Robert is their divine father, their teacher, their God. He decides what happens to their soul. How can someone consent under such spiritual authority? There's no telling how many have been harmed. And the pattern of spiritual trafficking that is emerging is systemic, sophisticated. So is it still going on? How many are complicit? And how deep does that complicity run? There were a group of us that were always watching how to make everything look good and be cover for what was actually happening. We had the idea that we were being watched over by higher forces. But the truth was, I found out that it's possible to get away with murder. That's in the next episode. Revelations is a Spotify original from Parcast, Blumhouse, Vespucci, and Gilded Audio. This podcast is reported, written, and hosted by me, Jennings Brown. I'll be sharing source material and reporting that didn't make it into the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at tjenningsbrown. Follow me there. 
If you have any information you'd like to share about the Fellowship of Friends, please email revelationstipline at gmail.com or call 347-480-3527 and leave a voicemail. Production, sound design, editing, and original music by Dan Rosado. Additional production by Whitney Donaldson, Ivana Tucker, Sarah Joyner, and Nick Dooley. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Opening narration by Viet Horej. Actually, it's Horej. Viet Horej. Artistic director of the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater. Drew Cole is our content writing lead at Parcast. Executive producers are Jennings Brown and Dan Rosado. At Parcast, Max Cutler and Drew Cole. At Blumhouse, Jason Blum, Chris McCumber, Jeremy Gold, and Mary Licio. At Vespucci, Johnny Galvin and Daniel Turkin. At Gilded Audio, Andy Chug. If you are a survivor of sexual assault and need to talk to someone, call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 or visit hotline.rainn.org. If you are outside the U.S., Pathways Safety International can be reached at 833-SAFE-833.